Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I would like to tell a story. I spent part of this week on the Yankee Ferry. Now, you're not going to know what the Yankee Ferry is. It was built in Philadelphia in 1907. It predated the Titanic. The Yankee Ferry is New York's oldest ferry boat. All 150 feet of it once transported immigrants to the greatest nation on earth, God bless America. Ignored by civilization, forgotten in history, it is launched before moon rockets. The Yankee Ferry is now home to a couple who also once tasted fame and success and stardom and now lost it, just like the Yankee Ferry. In the 80s, there were artists and creators by the names of Victoria McKenzie and Richard Childs. If you're not New Yorkers, I will tell you that their shop, McKenzie Childs, opened on East 57th Street, the richest street in New York for shopping. Their brilliant Offbeat, whimsical home designs, tableware, furnishings, kitchen craft, chairs, tables, pots, became a must-have. They were so celebrated that their one-of-a-kind expensive hand-tooled creations were also sold in top department stores. But that was then. Like the Yankee Ferry Boat, they too faced a finish line, bankruptcy, poor management. They were brilliant artists. They were not savvy financiers. The shop remains, but they won't own it any longer. They don't own their names any longer. They don't own their pieces any longer. The creations stay, but the names Victoria McKenzie and Richard Childs are gone. The place has been taken over by new management. The ownership is new. The ability to reuse their original designs or rebrand their famous names is now legally forbidden. Brings me to the ship. Once super famous and wealthy, this couple now live on the remnants of that leftover forgotten hulk. Then the ship was an emblem of American history, the oldest seaworthy craft in U.S. history, the Yankee Ferry, now forgotten. With waterways not deep enough to bring passengers to Manhattan, this last ferry boat transported immigrants to Ellis Island, the oldest in U.S. history. Its 147-foot-long steel hull 
with guns and cannon, guarded Boston Harbor. It carried our World War I soldiers to ships. Its gun was used for protection. It stood guard watching for torpedoes. It brought the Hearsts, the richest, the VIPs, the officials, to our newly assembled Statue of Liberty. Moored now in Staten Island, forgotten. I was on this now rotted, wood-warped, ropes-frayed, forgotten veteran. The wreckage of its 16-member crews, bunks, hammocks, empty trucks, a can on deck read, Black Bear Glue, 1888. In this specter of history, on its top deck, Victoria Mackenzie and husband Richard and their family made lunch for me. They served it on breathtaking one-of-a-kind platters, dishes, mugs, glasses, a table and chair that they managed to serve from the huge cache of treasures. This ship, is this the way to treat American history? Is this to be how we care for our elderly? Should not the United States of America revere and remember its veterans? Staten Island, listen, I live in New York. I know you are people out there who are not New Yorkers and may be listening, but I want to talk about my New York for a moment. Staten Island could use a sightseeing moment, a look into history, another reason to come to this borough. This is a museum. Is there no senator, congressman, politician, anyone to realize we are ignoring a treasure and having had homemade for ship's kitchen dinner, a baked cake made by Victoria? How about her making it this into maybe a tea shop? How about remembering, if not Victoria and her husband, how about remembering America? Will someone pay attention? In the immortal stammer of our immortal champ of state, chump of state, Biden, I will be closing this particular part of my broadcast by quoting our chump of state. He said, The first thing I'm doing next year to lick this recession is I'm going to get all these deadbeats out of the soup kitchens. Only in his fog, kids. Only in his fog. I got a lot more coming up. A lot of interesting people you're going to want to listen to. So stick around while we do a quick station break, and then I'm coming right back. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, so I'm talking to someone I know for the years, Wolfgang Puck. So tell me, in the beginning, in the early days, why become a chef? You're so smart. You know so many things. Why a chef? 
You know, my mother was a chef also, and I got, I thought that inspired me probably, but I wasn't good enough to go to a school or we didn't have enough money to go to a school after 14. And my stepfather was really a terrible stepfather. You know, he always told me I was good for nothing. So when I was 14, I left the house, started an apprenticeship in a a small town in Austria. And then I moved to France when I was 17. And there at the restaurant called Beaumanier, I found my mentor, really. That changed my life. And I spent seven years altogether in France and then moved to New York. And I wasn't so sure about New York, but somebody offered me a job in Indianapolis. And I'm a big race car fan. And I said, I'm going to Indianapolis. So I took the Greyhound bus, went to Indianapolis. (laughs) And uh, I said, oh, my God, that's Indianapolis. You know, I was imagining something like Monaco, Monte Carlo, because I used to live there and work at L'Hotel de Paris. And I said, that's Indianapolis. Where is the, the, the race? They took me out to the speedway, and I said, oh, my God, this is like a thing. But I had to stay there. I had no money to leave because uh, I spent the last $100 for it to travel from uh, New York to uh, uh, Indianapolis with the bus. So who the hell goes, who the hell goes to Indianapolis? I mean, even people well, who live there, who goes there? I, you know, the good thing was nobody immigrates to Indiana or Indianapolis. <laughs> so I got my green card really easy and really fast. There was nobody at the immigration. I was the only person there. So it was good for something. And then I moved to L.A. after I got my green card, worked at Mamezon for like five years. And then in 1982, in January, actually 40 years ago, I opened Spargo. Oh, we all know about Spago. It's super successful. Did you ever screw up a meal or a dish ever? Oh, you know, each year when Thanksgiving comes, I remember one time uh, I made the turkey and I said, okay, I'm going to glaze it. So I used some pomegranate glaze or whatever to put it on. And I put the oven on boil instead of bake, you know. Nice, very smart, yeah. Then all of a sudden, I said, oh, we are having cocktails, I think, already. I said, something smells really burnt in here. And (laughs) my former mother-in-law was making yams or something. So I said, oh, maybe she burned them. And then I go in the kitchen. That big smoke comes out of the oven. I open up. My turkeys were black like charcoal, you know. And I said, what do I going to (laughs) do? So I took them out, ripped off the skin of the turkey, and then I just did like nothing happened. So it's just the turkey had no skin. And then a few people who were at the dinner said, oh, Wolfgang, how did you smoke the turkey? It tastes delicious. It's smoky. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. That's very good. That's very good. Do you yourself eat three meals a day? Do you? No, my day is a meal. You know, I start in the morning, generally with the yogurt and a couple of double espresso. Then I go to the restaurant and I start eating and tasting. You know, I love sweets. So I go always to the pastry first and have some cookies. Or if I'm up at, uh, if I'm at the Bel Air Hotel, I have some croissant, some croissant au chocolat. And then uh, it continues a little salad, a little pasta. So I rarely sit down to have a meal uh, because I eat all day long. So I don't know how much I eat. So, Wolfgang, tell me about tipping. Are you for in favor of tipping or not, or just putting extra money on a waitress's salary? What What do you feel? 
Well, I really like America in a way. It's great for a free enterprise. I think the way that somehow the ones I talk to, because they are the most, uh, you know, they are in for that. So they think that tipping gives them an extra incentive to work harder, to come on time to the restaurant, and to be even nicer to the customers because they know they have to make the customer feel, feel good and make the customer happy because if not, their money will be reduced. You know, instead of getting uh, 20%, you might get 15% or even less. So I really think it's a good incentive. What about the difficulties today? We're having difficulty getting certain foods because of all the problems we're having with everything, with shipments. Are you having a difficulty getting certain foods? You know, we we can get foods now, except everything has gotten more expensive. Beef has gotten up 15 to 20%. I just looked yesterday, a case of House of Romaine, which were like nothing five years ago, maybe $20. Now it's $100. So it's really crazy how much prices have gone up because of shipping, and because of the minimum wage and because there are not enough workers really out there. And you know what I would suggest if I would be in politics? You know, we have all these immigrants coming from uh, South America, from Latin America. Yeah. And they come here not having a profession. Why can't we get some professionals from Europe or from Asia to come here, give them a work visa, and then... They are doing something positive for our economy. You know, I think it's so difficult to find employees. So I think we should check in a little bit with immigration and uh, get people visas so that way we can get enough workers. Because that's the hardest part right now is finding enough workers. I know about that. I also know, having spent lots of time in California and been in your wonderful restaurant, Spago, but everybody there has an ego. So how do you deal with egos Who gets the best table? Who sits where? How do you do that? Because I know that that's like a dance. Tell me. Well, I think luckily, you know, I know the people and I know what table they like. So when I call the restaurant, let's say even if I'm out of town, I'm in London or somewhere and uh, I call Spago or I call Kat, I know Jeffrey Katzenberg and uh, and Elton John, they like the same table. So they sit on table 30, let's say, at cut. I know what they like. Or Irwin Winkler likes it on the side, and he gets table 33. So I think I know what they like. So now all of our managers who are with us for a while, uh, you know, they know the customers. So it's really now that I have somebody call me up and says, oh, Wolfgang, I didn't get my table. But in the old time, you know, people were so paranoid by it that they said, well, if I don't get my table, I cannot eat here. You know, did you ever have I don't like to use a bad word because they'll throw me off the air. But did you ever have a real pain in the ass because he didn't get his table? Oh, my God. I had, you know, an old producer, he passed away, Marvin Wood. I don't know if you remember him. He did like Lenny and some of these old time movies, you know. Yeah. Oh my, he, he was the crankiest guy and he had a table, uh, only that table. And one day he comes in and he get, he didn't get his table. He walked out and says, I'm not eating here. And I had the table next to it. I don't know. Somebody made a mistake. The people were in the <laughs> middle of dinner. So he walked out. Naturally, I'm all concerned. I said, Marvin, okay, I'm so sorry. They made a mistake. Can I invite you back? And then finally he came back and, uh, 
I told him it's the manager. He knew the manager too. And then the manager tells him, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. It's all my fault. And Marvin looks at him and says, you're the most disgusting human being I ever met. <laughs> all about the damn favor. I mean. <laughs> but I know, I know, I know that what that's like. I've seen it here in New York. We, we yeah. do. We get, you don't want to sit next to an air conditioner. You don't want, don't want to sit next to somebody who's more famous than you. I mean, we all get yeah. that. Or we have a favor restaurant tour whatever the hell it is yeah. tell yeah. me what I, do you I feel remember, yeah i remember in the old time at lucirk you know and uh still you always put me on the front in the next i remember sitting next to ronald perlman and this one and that one they were all sitting on the first booth and i was sitting there and i said i actually don't want to sit here i know them all and uh you know i might rather sit in the back well <laughs> here in new york we have the problem with outdoor restaurants. We sit them yeah. on the curb or where a bus stop is. You can get hit by a truck when you're sitting outdoors. What yeah. do you feel about the outdoor restaurants? You know, I'm so happy we moved uh, uh, back in. You know, I actually built a terrace at uh, Cut at the Four Seasons Hotel downtown. You know, we built this with awnings and everything, and I just put some booths out there. But, you know, eating at the sidewalk, seeing the bus go by and everything, it's not my cup of tea. So I'm so glad we can use the inside 100 percent. And our customer cuts are really happy that they don't have to sit outside. They're back inside where they can uh, enjoy themselves and not worry if somebody's going to come by and uh, yell at them or whatever. You know, it's so crazy because if you sit on the sidewalk, anybody can come by and, uh, you know, there are so many homeless people. Uh, and so many people who are, are crazy out there, so it's really difficult. Tell me the difference, and how, how does a restaurateur figure out? H half the people are, are vegetarian. Somebody wants only organic. Somebody else is on dietetic. Somebody else is only a vegetarian. They, are, they can be pains in the behind. How do you do all that? I don't know how that works. Okay, you know, we know we are ready for it. So if I have vegetarian, we always have great vegetarian dishes. Like, for example, at Cut, we make a Kung Pao. You know, Kung Pao is a Chinese preparation. But instead with, with chicken, we make it with cauliflower. And I almost like it better. And when these vegan or vegetarians eat it, they say, oh, my God, I never had something so taste so good because it has ginger, it has chilies, it has uh, 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 all the spices in it. It's a little sweet, a little sour. So it's really, really delicious. So it's very easy. And that's Fargo here, too. It's easy. You know, I can make a vegetarian pizza, a vegan pizza. The pastas are always easy. So it's not a problem for us. We are almost always ready. And even with the soup, you know, we have soup without cream in it, without butter in it. So it's, uh, it's really ready. I don't, I don't worry. But it's a very small percentage. You know, it's not 20% uh, or 30%. It's maybe less than 5%. How many cookbooks did you write? Somebody gave me a Wolfgang, Wolfgang Puck cookbook. I can't understand yeah. anything. So tell me. I can't make bread. I can't make water. So how many yeah. cookbooks do you, did you write? You know, I love people like you because if they all would be cooking at home and then they wouldn't <laughs> come to the restaurant, we wouldn't be in business. So I love people who go out, who have parties in the restaurant. I go I like all the way. I love restaurants. I love, I love restaurants. I, but you've, lead, you've I, done a lot of cookbooks. 
Yeah, yeah, I wrote seven cookbooks. I'm actually working on the eighth one now, more like a little, a, a history cookbook, uh, uh, you know, when I started to now and how food has changed in America, you know, dining has changed in America. So I'm working on that now. And I think I continue to do it because it really, I like a good challenge and do something new and a little bit different. But restaurants are my real passion. And I think that's what uh, I really like, you know. So that's why we are expanding restaurants, still opening restaurants uh, overseas now more so. So, But we're also doing a new project with Frank Geary right here on the beach in Malibu. And uh, Frank Geary is going to design the building and we're going to do the restaurant. So we are working with him right as we speak for that. So I continue and continue. I don't think there will be an end to it. What about what about the Oscars? You you serve at uh, the Oscars sometimes at the governor's dinner. I mean, I've been there. Yeah. How yeah, does yeah. that work? How do you do that? How do you know how many people to do? Or doesn't the food get stale if you have to make it early? I don't understand how that works. Well, you know what? We have like an army. We have 300 chefs all together working, you know. And then I have 600 people in the dining room. So everybody gets served just like in a restaurant. You know, I would divide up stage and then put four chefs on it and they get uh, just doing, uh, let's say, vegan dishes. And then uh, uh, I remember Joachim Phoenix who came uh, in the kitchen and said, this is the best vegan food I ever had in my life. I remember Michael Caine when he used to come to dinner and then the next day he comes to Spargo for dinner and he said, Wolfgang, <laughs> can you make the same dinner as you made uh uh, at the Academy Awards for my family. So I said, yeah, yeah, I can. I, I will fix it for you. So that's really a great thing when people come and say, wow, the dinner was so delicious uh, and uh, I could eat it any day. Nobody would think it was made for 1,500 people. So we don't cook anything in advance, everything at the last minute. And I remember one time when we had it, I think the first year up at uh, Hollywood uh, and Highland there, you know where we do it now at the Dolby Theater, and the electricity went out, and I still had to cook, uh, I think, 500 steaks or something. We had a, <laughs> a, a serpent turf, like roasted salmon and steak, and I cooked half of it, and all of a sudden the electricity went out. And I was sweating, and the security <laughs> was so tight, the engineer couldn't come up in the kitchen, and all was uh, all there was to it was a breakup, but nobody knew how to fix it until, like, for 15 minutes it was up. Wolfgang, I love you. Will you be nice to me when I'm out in Hollywood at Spago? Will you get me a decent table? You're going to get always the best table because Thank I remember you. you from the old time. You used to come out for Swiss yes, Dealers, yes, Dalsa, yes, Oscar yes, Party yes, and everything. Yes, yeah. yes. So that's Th when we first met. And Thank uh, you. I read your I read your paper every every day. You know, I'm, uh, I live in L.A., but I get the New York Post all the time. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you for coming okay. on. We love you, Wolfgang. And Thank you, honey. And next time... Hopefully, if I come in New York, now that I have your number, you come and we have dinner downtown at Cut. I look forward we, to it, honey. I would love to. Wiener, we make a Wiener schnitzel or something like that. Some That's fine food. for me. Thank you, sweetie. Yeah. Thank you, honey. Thank you. Uh, okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I, Madam Adams, am about to interview one of the most famous musicians of all time from one of the most famous groups of all time. He is playing with his group, the Beach Boys, this week at Carnegie Hall. Here he is, Mike Love.
Happens to be Mike Love calling Cindy. That's correct. This is one of the extreme pleasures for me. I am about to speak to Love of the Beach Boys. I am very to talk to you because I have loved you for generations. Can you tell me the difference in all these audiences? You've been everywhere, Norway, Sweden, Belgium, wherever the hell you've been. What is the difference in these different audiences? I don't know. Our music preceded us around the world. We've, you know, our song Kokomo was number one for eight weeks in Australia, but we've had number one records in Spain and in Germany and England and all over uh, Scandinavia, uh, not to mention Canada and so on. But, uh, you know, so, so yes, we've been blessed to be able to go out and play concerts all over the world. The audiences are it used to be you'd go to Japan and, and they were a little bit reserved, but not anymore. They got into rock and roll and uh, that was it. They, they, they got the spirit. Anyway, I... so yeah, the, we, we've just found that the successive generations of, of people have been coming to Beach Boy shows for, for uh, decades now and we love it. Oh, of course you do, and I understand that. I just wondered if some audiences are a little more enthusiastic or scream more or jump up more. I didn't know what, whether they were different in different countries. Well, that that's, it has to do with the age of the audience members. You know, the, if, if it's a young audience in a festival setting, yeah, they, they, they jump around and, and, and they sing along and stuff like that. If they're an older audience in a... In a, in a uh, proper theater like we're going to be monday night we're going to yeah. be at carnegie. At, at carnegie hall right and ironically we have a, a box set out called sail on sailor and we have a live album from 50 years ago in carnegie hall what is the difference when you work in carnegie hall i mean you guys are so successful and you're so celebrated i understand all that but is there not a little fear or a little ex- extra excitement about working in carnegie well, yeah. I mean, like if you do Royal Albert Hall in London, it's like uh, I always say for the Catholics, it's the Vatican. For musicians, it's Royal Albert <laughs> yeah, Hall. Yeah. And the similar kind of, of vibe when you go to Carnegie, it's such an iconic place. And so, you know, it, it, it is there. there is a specialness to it. it you want to do the best you can possibly can. Mike, do you remember WABC during the Cousin Brucey days? Do I ever? I remember Cousin Brucey once told me that when he first heard Good Vibrations in 1966, he didn't like it, but he got to like it. But uh, you know, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny because it wasn't like Surfing USA or I Get Around or Fun, Fun, Fun or Help Me Ronda or any of those songs or California Girls. But So it was a little different, and it got some taken used to, uh, getting used to from Brucey. But I, I just spoke him the other day he's still on the radio doing his thing and playing those songs we all love you guys are so successful and so famous but how does it work together when you all have maybe a disagreement or a fight beforehand when you go on stage does it all well, ever get affected or some or something i don't i don't think we carried our stuff on the stage ever um if there was a disagreement i mean um, you know, my cousin Brian decided to leave the touring group in 1964, and yeah. Glenn Campbell took over for six months, and then Bruce Johnson joined the group 
and sang uh, California Girls with us in 1965. So there may have been departures, and and maybe we do things separately, but we don't. We're not at each other's throats by any chance. By any, I mean, we've got we've got a lot of history together, but most of it is very very positive. I mean, we've had been so successful and blessed. Listen, I've been at the post even before Alexander Hamilton founded it, and I can still fight with a few people. Ah. So I figured everybody else does too once in a while. That's right. And I say when we do Carnegie Hall, I'm going to tell the audience, say, well, I remember the grand opening. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's good. That's good. How does a song start? I don't know how the idea comes. How does a song begin? It depends. Sometimes you have a lyrical idea. Sometimes you have a musical idea. If Brian came to me with a musical idea and he didn't have much going on lyrics, I would supply the lyrics. Like, for instance, he did a great track for Good Vibrations. It was really avant-garde. It was really interesting, unique track. But he didn't have the words. So I came up with, I'm picking up Good Vibrations, which follows the bass line. And then I wrote all the words uh, on the way to the studio. I dictated the poem that are the lyrics uh, for Good Vibrations. So there was a spontaneity of writing the lyrics along with the structure of doing the track in several different uh, studios over a few different months. So, yeah, it can happen in either way. Uh, either words come first, or the poem comes first, or or the music comes first. You know, I, I'm going to ask if things ever go wrong on your tours. I have schlepped around the world, all over, all over Asia. And in Laos, there was thousands of pounds of equipment that was lost on Lao Air. And my husband was about to conduct an event for the king and queen that were in Thailand. And we didn't have 40,000 pounds of equipment. Did you ever have something like that go wrong or, or ever lose your equipment? Not that affected our shows because we have an excellent crew that goes ahead of us and takes care of whatever needs to be taken care of. But we've had stuff stolen, like entire, uh, you know, trailer full of uh, of stuff stolen. So we just had to get it replaced in time to do a show. What do you think of today's music, Mike? I don't very much get involved with what's going on right now. I, I prim, primarily listen to, uh, you know, Sirius Radio uh, 60s on 6 or whatever, to, and, uh, wondering if they're going to play one of our songs, and they do. <laughs> so, Everybody does. What you do know, you think? Yeah, we're going on a cruise in March, March 3rd through the 7th, and we're going to be with the Temptations, the Isley Brothers, the Righteous Brothers, and our friend Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray is going to come on board, too. So we're going to go. There's going to be so much music on that cruise. It's going to be great. What kind of a cruise is this? This is a cruise on Norwegian Air, Norwegian uh, cruise lines out of Miami to Belize and to someplace in Mexico and then on back to Miami. And all kinds of music. It's, it's our cruise. It's the good Beach Boys Good Vibrations Cruise. What do you think of the ticket mess with Taylor Swift? Well, it's not only Taylor Swift. The, the Carnegie Hall, which we're playing on Monday night, was kind of screwed up when when, when they went when we went on sale. It, it, it took a while to straighten things out. 
so I don't know the the real ins and outs of it, but I but you know even even with all the technology in the world, you can still have snafus. No, I know you can. I know you can. What is your favorite music besides yours? What do you listen to if you're if you're home by yourself? You know, I love all the the old stuff that I grew up on. The doo-wop songs are so great, and the still of the night, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I. I love the Everly Brothers. I love Chuck Berry. I love all that, the the founders of rock and roll and stuff like that. And all the contemporaries of ours, the Beatles, yeah. the, the Eagles, you know, every you know everybody that, that came after uh, those founders. Uh, so I, I'm just a big rock music fan. What about New York? What's your favorite arena here? I don't know. The Carnegie Special, there's no question about <laughs> yeah, it. But we yeah. played... We played in Central Park years ago, and it rained, and people loved it. it was, we had a great time. Um, you know, we played all over the place, you know, in, in Madison Square Garden and, and uh, you know, out on the island, you know, Jones Beach. And, uh, you know, we, we played in the Theater of the Round in Westbury. And on Tuesday night, we'll be at the Paramount out in Huntington, which is a fantastic venue. Love that place. Listen, Mike Love and the Beach Boys is more famous than the Statue of Liberty, for God's sakes. I'm just telling you, I was thrilled and happy to talk to you, honey. And someday I'm going to come backstage. Will you be nice to me when I do that? I will roll out the red carpet. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me, Mike. Thank you, and good luck at Carnegie Hall tomorrow. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks, baby. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. So listen to me. We are coming into Christmas. So deck the halls with glasses of wine. Tis the season. Lady Gaga's goo-goo for Shiraz. That's a red wine. Kylie Jenner does Pinot Grigio. That's a white one. Snoop Dogg inhales rosé. Drew Barrymore grows, stows, and knows her own. Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas have their own wineries. Others will inhale anything, even if you pour prune juice. For whites, I am telling you, it's a light-buddied Riesling. For a medium buzz, they are telling me, the experts, Sauvignon Blanc. For reds, Merlot. To go with bagels and cream cheese, try, <laughs> try Manischewitz. And if you're really on the El Cheapo, a Chianti from the supermarket. If you should be invited by someone with a paid-up mortgage, throw in the favorite you always drink and make sure it begins with the word Chateau. That sounds so classy. Chateau what? This I don't know. I don't care either. I only know if you use chateau, everybody thinks it's great. Meantime, I am testing myself personally some $10 Zinfandel thing from Portugal. So, this wino's special Christmas dinner was a 15-pound roast that he planned last year and is going to do it again. He added one quart scotch, he heated it, he then poured a bottle of gin over it, 
added a shot of burgundy. Then it was back in the oven for an hour. His friend last year said, Wow, that made a great roast, didn't it? And the chef said, No, but who the hell cares? It was a great gravy. So now I'm going to drone on. I know you are people out there who live everywhere, but I really, at this moment, since it's holiday time, and I'm sort of thinking I would like to do something about my city. So pay attention to me for a moment. Ask not what your country can do for you. Also, not who dropped the following information onto me. Ask me nothing. Just know that these mouths were VIPs. From very high up in the NYPD, our city, New York, is going down the tubes. That is a direct quote. From some of the political people, high up, very high up, they helped make our mayors and governors. They said the man who ran for governor, Zeldin, he had all the right ideas, but he just wasn't a star. From a VIP, a rich one who lives on Park Avenue, he said, our mayor's supporters were progressives, but he is not a progressive. Minorities want good schools, safe schools, safe streets, real jobs. He knows that, but he does not know how to do it, how to deal with it. This mayor we have puts minorities into jobs they cannot do. Their politics are in the right place. Their capabilities are not. Here are some jerk Adams hires. Lisa White was his former landlady. She is now his deputy commissioner for employee relations. A man called David Johnson. He was formally investigated in a criminal case. And he is now the new gun czar of New York. Fernando Cabrera, he's a former Bronx pastor. He's now our mayor's executive aide. How about Reverend Alfred Cockfield? He was convicted of drug-related issues, and he now manages this mayor's political action committee. Lori Cumbo was the former Brooklyn councilwoman known for insensitive, insensitive remarks. She is now his cultural affairs commissioner. So Eric's own police accomplishments, what were they? I have checked them out. The answer was he ran the 100 blacks in law enforcement organization. So, I just want to tell you, he may be a nice man, and he wears pretty suits, but he doesn't know how, and he doesn't have people who know how. I have to tell you, he is well-connected, but he can't organize, plan, strategize, or promote the greatest city on the face of the universe. So, while any of us who live here are starting to hunt a bungalow in Yuma, know that 
Eric Adams itches to be president of, as they put it, New York City and then the United States of America. Not enough he wants to run the world's financial capital, New York. He wants to run America. Just be aware. Remember, children, that mother told you. Mother has told you there is absolutely nothing like this city anywhere in the whole world anywhere. Our mayor who tried blew it. Bloomberg didn't make president. DeWitt Clinton in the 1800s tried, didn't make it. A thousand times only who tried, Theodore Roosevelt made it. The reason? Jealousy. Recognizing we are the cornucopia of the universe. They just don't want to kneel to New York. But I do. And I want to kneel to all of you who listen to me. I love you. I love WABC. I love the radio. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to me. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.